The reading for the day comes from Exodus 7, 17 through 18, 8, 1 through 4, and 16 through 17. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. I'm now going to hit the water of the Nile River with this rod in my hand, and it will turn into blood. The fish in the Nile are going to die. The Nile will sink, and the Egyptians won't be able to drink water from the Nile. Then the Lord says to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Let my people go so that they can worship me. If you refuse to let them go, then I'll send a plague of frogs over your whole country. The Nile will overflow with frogs. They'll get into your palace, into your bedroom, and onto your bed, into your officials' houses, and among all your people, and even into your ovens and bread pans. The frogs will crawl up on you, your people, and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, Stretch out your shepherd's rod and hit the land's dirt so that lice appear in the whole land of Egypt. They did this. Aaron stretched out his hand with his shepherd's rod, hit the land's dirt, and the lice appeared on both people and animals. All the land's dirt turned into lice throughout the whole land of Egypt. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. What a week. I know Cameron already said it, I'm going to say it again. What a week. What a beginning to 2021. If you weren't on team, nothing has changed before. Maybe this has made you uh, drawn toward that camp. And it's true that we know that we are going to continue encountering crises and difficulties, tragedies and oppression. And that these things are part of the system of the earth that we live in, the, the worldly systems of power. This is part of the need for the kingdom, for a different way. And until the whole world is made new in God's new creation, we will encounter the difficulties of a broken world. This week was a reminder to me of how important the topic of packing light is, this series that we're in through the month of January. We're looking at the story of the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and trying to understand what that means for us, trying to move from places of captivity or suffering into freedom at, let's be honest, great cost. We're trying to learn from the Israelites to pack light because in the midst of the chaos of the plagues, Pharaoh had said, okay, after 10 plagues, Pharaoh said, I relent, you can go. And there was this brief window of time, but the Israelites knew that Pharaoh was fickle. They knew that he might change his mind. They knew they had to get out of there as fast as they could, and so they didn't even wait for the bread to leaven. They didn't wait for it to rise. They took unleavened bread. They took whatever they could scrounge together for the journey. They packed really, really light, and they moved into freedom, not waiting to bring with them the captivity of the past, but they had, out of necessity, to leave behind those things that wouldn't serve them on the journey ahead. 
Little did they know that they wouldn't have gotten very far before Pharaoh would change his mind. He sent his army after them, confronting them at the Red Sea. It was God's miracle that made a way for them when it seemed like there was no way. The parting of the Red Sea and the entree into the wilderness. This is a big story with lots and lots of elements. But today, when we're talking about packing light, when we're really zeroing in on that experience of the Israelites and and what they learned, how they survived, how they thrived in the call of God towards liberation and love and life in a different kind of way, we're going to be looking at the plagues. Why would we even talk about the plagues when we're talking about how the Egyptians, uh, I'm sorry, about how the Israelites are packing? Well, it turns out that when we pack, when we prepare for the future, we often bring with us more than just bread or clothes. We bring with us experiences. And the Israelites had just had some really, really nasty ones. In the scripture today, we read about the first three plagues, but the the plagues cycle of the Exodus story goes on for chapters and chapters and chapters. Ten plagues in total. Some of those plagues, God clearly intentionally protects the Israelites from, but the first three are particularly vague. The river of blood, the frogs, the pestilence, We can only imagine what the Egyptians went through under Pharaoh's reign, the Egyptians who were certainly benefiting from Pharaoh's decisions but were also not in a power position to make them, had to suffer alongside Pharaoh as well. But what of the Israelites? We know from our own lived experiences in this broken world, these systems of oppression, That whenever anyone suffers, those who are most oppressed already suffer the most. And so we can only imagine what it must have been like to be an Israelite, to be in slavery in Egypt, and have the rivers run red with blood. We can only imagine what it would be like to be subject to those swarms of locusts that were going to eat, devour everything in their path. Even if the Israelites themselves were spared certainly directly in their homes, for instance, when the livestock were afflicted, God made sure to spare the livestock, any livestock that the Israelites had. And yet, if there was widespread famine, if there was widespread suffering, if there was widespread lack in Egypt, We know that those at the bottom of those social structures of power and domination, the Israelites, would have suffered too. And so what happens when these these pestilences, these plagues that are induced by the powers that be, that are induced because of the evil decisions made by the people at the top, when they affect all of us, especially the most vulnerable, How do we cope when those who have power to protect themselves bring upon us plagues that we then are not protected from systematically and the most vulnerable are the ones who suffer and even die? 
How do we survive that is a question for another day. But the question for today is, what do we do in the aftermath? Certainly, the Israelites knew they needed to get out of there, and that was the whole of God's plan, to get them out. That the evils of Pharaoh and the people in power were doubling back against them, that they were reaping the consequences of their evil decisions. And yet, even as the Israelites were looking to the future, they had just lived through something horrific. So how did they, and how do we, leave the plague behind? Packing light is about making our journey easier. It's about creating room for the things that matter most to us, to move into a future unencumbered. It's about letting go of things that don't serve us, to create space for other resources, and ultimately extra space to just be to be a person, to breathe. Packing light spiritually is about accessing your internal landscape. When we talk about our baggage, this is what we mean. We are not physically carrying suitcases full of locusts and frogs and blood. But if we are unable to process, if we are unable to grieve the horrors that we've seen or even the minor wounds and pains of our day, we take them along with us, creating a heavier and heavier burden, making freedom that much more difficult to run into. So what are the things that bog us down? What are the things that are holding us back, tethering us to the past, to the pain that we went through but couldn't let go of? What kinds of baggage do you bring with you unintentionally? When the Israelites were preparing for a future of freedom, I believe that their journey was made easier if and when they could leave those plagues behind in Egypt. Their burden would be lighter. They would be freer to imagine, as we talked about last week, to hope in a new creation, a different kind of life. But we hold on to feelings. We hold on to our experiences of pain and wounding, and we don't even mean to. You see, feelings are complex. Feelings are physiological. We like to think of ourselves as primarily rational beings, but... Our actual data, our actual studies, our understanding of the body show that feelings are neurological. And neurological means not just in the brain, but in your whole nervous system, which goes throughout every part of your body. That's where your feelings live. I will be referencing a lot a podcast, um, Brene Brown's podcast, uh, unlocking us. She recently had on Emily and Amelia Nagoski, who are the authors of a book called Burnout. It's about understanding the cycle of feelings that happen in our bodies and how we get stuck. They say that feelings have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and that our job to move into the future, not to bring things with us, but to move through them, is to make it all the way to the end, to complete the cycle, as they call it. 
one of the metaphors they use is that feelings are a tunnel. That when we're in them, there is a light at the end, and we can move all the way through them, get to the light again. But if we don't, if we try and avoid it, if we try and not think about it, if we try and just bury it down, we end up stuck in that tunnel until the day that we are ready to face it. Feelings aren't just an ethereal thing that happens between people or in our minds. Feelings are physically located in our bodies. We have more and more research showing extreme feelings, for instance, related to trauma, and the way that that can have chronic impact on our bodies, on our physical bodies. When we move through the world always with a pit in the bottom of our stomach or with our shoulders just extra tense or just that, that thing in your throat that doesn't go away, those are feelings in your body with physiological um, implications, measurable experiences that you are having. Your feelings, in short, are real. They are more real than we ever like to give them credit for. And those feelings often come from stressors. Now, the doctors Nagoski talk about how we often try and separate the situation of the stressor from our feelings about it. And we think that once the stressor itself has been sort of solved, the feeling should be over. The locusts are gone, so we should be fine now, right? The Proud Boys are no longer storming the Capitol. It's over. We're over it. Or even that stressful boss or stressful conversation you had with your boss this morning was hours ago. So you shouldn't be having feelings about it anymore, right? In the podcast, Emily talks to Brene about this, and I'd like to read it to you. We're not going to put it up on the screen because this was a conversation, so I want to read it to you in the way that I understood her saying it. But Emily is talking about the messaging we receive from the world, from one another, from even ourselves, about how our feelings are invalid or an inconvenience and we should just move on from them. Emily says, so why do you still have all these feelings? We don't want to hear about your feelings anymore. Your feelings should be done because the situation is done, so let it go. We're so tired of hearing about you and your feelings. And you're like... I must behave myself emotionally so that I do not interfere with anyone else's well-being. And so I am now officially done with my feelings. And you smile and you shove it down into some organ system. I don't know which one. And it lives inside of you. Brene responds, and it metastasizes, yeah? And Emily says, oh, yeah. Feelings are kept, stored within our bodies, waiting to be processed, waiting to be held. And so when we are talking about leaving the plagues behind, the last thing I mean is get over it. The last thing I mean is don't even bother bringing that with you because you should be over it by now. That is not what we're talking about here. In fact, when we try and do that, when we try and say, I'm over it, or I'm leaving it behind, or whatever, that was before, without having first actually just sat with it, just been present to it, just let it wash over our bodies and give our bodies a moment of release. If we aren't 
willing and able to do that, that is actually when we carry it with us unwittingly. They talk about the tunnel. What it makes me think of is one of my favorite childhood stories slash songs slash patty cake experiences, which is going on a bear hunt. There are various hand gestures and claps involved, but we're going on a bear hunt is the refrain. Gonna catch a big one. We're not scared, which is clearly a lie. They're very scared. But they encounter all of these obstacles over and over again. They come up to grass, long, wavy grass. And they say, oh, can't go over it. Can't go under it. Got to go through it. And so you have this experience as you're going on a bear hunt with whatever child or um, imaginative adult that you're experiencing this with. And uh, when you get to the long, wavy grass and you can't go over it and you can't go under it, you have to go through it. You put your hands together, you go swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy. And what I love about that is that it, it brings you into this moment of like feeling the sensations, of hearing the noises, of what it means to wade through long, wavy grass. It is unknown, it might be scary, but you've got to be present to it. Swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy, swishy, swashy. And the song refrain goes on. You come across a river, a cold, deep river, and you splash through that. You come across mud, thick, oozy mud, and you squelch through the mud. You come to a big, dark forest, and you stumble and trip through the forest. Stumble, trip, stumble, trip, stumble, trip. This is our whole lives. It's just like this, this bear hunt. But unlike the fictional bear hunt, we can't just like camp out and say like, you know what, what if I just stop? What if I just stop at the forest? I can't go over it, can't go under it, don't want to go through it, I'm just not going to. We encounter these obstacles over and over again. Life will propel us forward. Even if we don't want to go through the swishy-swashy, even if we're like, nope, not swishing and swashing today, it will still propel us to that cold river and through that mud. And I think that what happens here in our bodies, the metaphor I'd like to take from going on a bear hunt, is that when we don't have the space or the wherewithal or the choice to just sit and swishy-swashy, to just sit and squelch and really contend with those feelings. It's not like we get to check out of that obstacle. We end up carrying it with us. It's like we take that grass and put it in our pack. We take the mud and the water and we put it in our pack. When we don't allow ourselves to feel it fully, we can't actually move through it. It just comes with us. And all of a sudden, we are <laughs> ignoring the fact that we are still swishing. We're ignoring our splashing and our squelching. So by the time we hit the snowstorm, where we need to be prepared to shiver, we're not just shivering. 
were shivering and swishing and squelching and splashing and stumbling and tripping all at once, just trying with everything in our bodies to ignore it and to say, I'm fine, this is fine. And we're, we're like that cartoon dog in the middle of the fire. This is all fine. And we've come to joke about it. There are so many memes about it because it is one of our culture's primary coping skills. Denial. Denial of our feelings. Denial of our lived experiencing. Denial of our bodies. It is exhausting. And it is not the freedom for which God created us. We are trapped in those moments by pain that we have not faced. We are held captive by a past which continues to torment us. We never escape the plagues when we bring them with us. And this baggage just gets heavier and heavier over time, makes it harder to deal with the next trial, harder to be present to the shivering and to just say, gosh, it's cold in here, and to feel the pain of that when you're still trying to ignore the squelching of the mud and the cold splashing of the river. It is hard to survive in the wilderness on manna when you have a pack full of locusts and frogs and blood. Now I want to pause here and just acknowledge that sometimes we simply do not have the capacity to feel all of our feelings, and that's okay. That's actually why God gave us this coping mechanism of being able to pack it away and deal with it later. Because in the middle of a crisis, you may not have the space or the time to feel the swishing of the grass against your legs and to contemplate your fear of the field. But we don't actually get to ignore it and throw it away forever. We get to put a hold on it. How many little feelings, little moments, big feelings, big pains and wounds have just been put to the back burner. We do reach moments of overflow where we can't anymore. One of the times in our life where we are most particularly vulnerable to being unable or under-resourced to deal, to face, to encounter our pain is when we're children. We may not have all of the resources yet. So we may have wounds that are very, very old. Now the older a wound, the more fundamental or the more traumatic, the more it takes, the more space and support it takes. This is why I highly recommend therapy for basically everyone. But we can also deal with a lot of things, including the little stressors, the little moments of our lives, or the, the more recent things, just by being aware, just by noticing, and by doing so as a community. You see, as children, one of our limitations is that we aren't as well-resourced relationally. We don't get to choose who we're in relationship with. We may have caregivers who are wonderful or caregivers who are deeply inadequate. Most of us have a combination of both. But as adults, we get to choose who we lean on, who we go to, what the voices are that are speaking into our lives. 
what voices we put out into the world. Are we contributing outward or inward to a narrative that tells you to just shove your feelings down? To just put it on the back burner because you've got to move on? Or is there capacity in you with the ones you love and with yourself to say, hey, I've got a moment. What if we just sit with that? Because that sounds really painful. If we can do that, if we can face the thing we're going through, can't go over it, can't go under it, got to go through it. If we can just be present to the swish, 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 and move our bodies through the cycle of releasing that emotion, that's one last thing that we have to carry on our backs. As a community, we are called to hold space for one another, to sit with our struggles, to sit with the locusts and the blood and the frogs and the dark forests and the deep waters, to hold that with one another, because it is so scary to do that alone. But we don't have to. We can face these things together. We can grieve them. And the beauty of grief is that once you move through it, you can release it. You may carry the memory, the lessons, but you won't carry the actual burden of the plague in the same way anymore. Now, back on that podcast and in their wonderful book, which is on my to-read list, uh, Dr. Emily and Dr. Amelia Nagoski give a number of different, very practical tools for releasing in the body. They really recommend attending to the body, and they emphasize that you don't actually have to think that hard about things or process all of the emotions intellectually, that these practices are for your body, and they're about moving your body through the cycle of stress and emotion so that you can get to the other side. One of their recommendations, which I think will um, not shock some of you, is physical activity. Now, uh, I believe it was Amelia talks about how she used to run. And she's like, I don't anymore. I walk. And I think that when we talk about physical activity, that can be really overwhelming because sometimes it's hard just to make it through our day and we can't imagine moving our bodies more. My therapist recently mentioned physical activity and I was like, oh, yeah, I keep meaning, blah, 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 blah. And she's like, no, no, no. I mean, literally, like, like wave your arms around. That's what she did on Zoom in my therapy session. And you know what? That feels great. <laughs> it feels really great. Another suggestion that they have is breathing really slowly. Breathing intentionally on purpose, slowly inhaling, and even more slowly exhaling. They say till you feel it in your abdominal muscles. And they say to do that intake and outtake for 90 seconds. They say you don't have to think that mindfulness helps for that, but it's actually optional. That there are studies that show that just doing those breaths helps engage uh, the parts of your nervous system that orient you to the present and out of crisis. Brene Brown chimed in at this point in the conversation and said that she loves deep breathing and that she wrote about it in one of her recent books. She says that she found two camps of people who really promote this kind of breathing. And one is yoga instructors, 
and the other is special forces military. And I think she included that in the conversation to sort of say like, some of us think that breathing is this like woo woo, like very hippie, um, hyper spiritual new age kind of a thing. Um, but she said, you know, special forces military know enough about the body and the body in crisis that this is one of the ways they train people to be present and alert. Deep breathing. Another suggestion they give, um, and I know this is not possible for everybody, especially during quarantine, but they say a 20-second hug. They emphasize that it's about leaning in and being vulnerable with somebody, maintaining your own center of gravity, not, not leaning on someone or sort of collapsing on someone, but, but being able to feel your own center of gravity pulled in toward another. And they say that the 20 seconds is kind of an approximation, but you're supposed to hold it for a really long time until you feel your body just release. That that connection with another person, the sensation of being held, actually moves your body through the stress cycle so that you can get to the other side. The last suggestion they have that I'd like to share today is crying. They say crying is a skill and it's something that some of us have the freedom to, to be able to do. Um, others of us had to really learn to do or have to learn. Um, but that crying is a physiological release. It is a design in us, I believe, from God, a way to take all the things that are pent up and literally pour them out of our bodies. They mentioned that some people are afraid that if they start crying, they'll never stop. But that for most people, if you can get yourself to have a good cry, it lasts for a couple minutes. And then there is this meaningful physical release. These are some practical practices that we can incorporate into our lives to be present to our feelings so that we're not just picking up the wounds and pains and stressors of everyday life and adding them to the burdens on our back. Our spirituality our faith, our draw towards a relationship with God. It's not just a set of ideas or principles or philosophies. The core of it actually lives like emotions in our bodies. We have many names for God. One of my favorite is Ruach, which is Hebrew for breath. And it it is related to the story in Genesis where humanity is just a, a pile of dust until God breathes God's life's breath into the clay, and that's what makes us human. The very breath of God is in our lungs. That is how intimate our God is with us, and that is an image we have of the Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, ruach. In Greek, pneuma. Both words for wind or breath. So if we want to dismiss deep breathing as too woo-woo, if special forces military doesn't appeal to us at all for reasons I would totally understand, just think about how God chooses to represent themselves to us as the breath in our lungs. We are invited by our creator to breathe, to breathe and release to remember who we are, that as created beings of God, this is part of our DNA. This is how we're built to be able to breathe in conversation with God, to take in from God and to let go even more that we release the burdens 
in our bodies, in our lives. Our God is relational, three in one. Our scriptures tell us that Jesus wept. These are not just really good suggestions from secular um, thinkers. These are built in spiritual practices of what it means to be an embodied follower of Jesus, alive to the bodies that God gave us, connected to the spirit of life which is in our lungs, present to the moment and ready to grieve what needs to be, what deserves to be grieved. The final comfort that I take in being a follower of Jesus and a seeker of God is that I never have to do any of this alone. I mentioned community before, and I think community is crucial. I think that we can hold with one another more pain than any one of us could hold alone. That when you come together with a fellow human being who has compassion and presence, who can hold your pain with you, you can swish, 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 be present to it, feel it all the way, and move through it together. And also, in those moments where another human being isn't available, or in those moments where you need support right now, you are already not alone. God is with you every step of the way. God has seen it all. God knows the depth of your pain probably greater than you do. And we can be free with God. We don't have to filter because, let's be honest, we can't. And God knows what you need. God knows that that deep breath is what you were made for. God knows how you operate because she gave you the ability to cry and wail. God gave you a body with healing powers and wants you to be present to it so that you don't have to carry the pains of everyday life over and over forever. We know uh, from research that even imagining closeness is helpful. And so it is a beautiful spiritual practice and a clinically studied psychological practice that if you just close your eyes and imagine being held by God or by a friend, that you will have sensations in your body similar to if you got that real in-person hug. So when we al become alive to the presence of God with us, when we become aware of the release mechanisms God gave us in our bodies, we can grieve the pain that we have been through. We can be present to the locusts, to the, to the frogs, to the stress. We can be present, we can grieve, we can release. And we can leave some of those burdens behind as we walk into a new and different future. I'd like to end today by doing one of those suggestions, physical activity. Now, I already waved my arms around, but another suggestion they had that was very practical that I really liked was tensing all the mu muscles of your body. So I'm going to invite you to do that. They tell you um, to tense and release, and I'd like you to do this as a spiritual practice. So I want you to, as you tense your muscles, I want you to imagine 
holding all of the pain, all of the plagues, all the things that you feel like you haven't let go of yet. If there's one specific thing that you want to let go of right now, or at least begin to let go of, imagine that. So right now, take every muscle of your body, everything you can, and tense it up. Tense it up and hold it. Hold it as long as you can, as hard as you can, till you feel like your muscles are going to give out. And then as soon as you are ready, which doesn't have to be when I'm ready, but as soon as you are ready, I want you to let it go and imagine releasing all of that tension, all of that burden, all of that pain to God who can hold it, who can take it for you. Feel that pain in the tension and then release it. These kinds of practices are part of what our body is built to do to process our pain, to feel it in that tension. That tension which is real, which you carry with you. Feel it everywhere on purpose and then release it to the God who can hold your burdens, the God who loves you, the God who made you with healing in your body. Will you pray with me? God of creative brilliance, we thank you for these bodies. We thank you for our ability to process when and how we need. And God, we pray for your wisdom, for your courage, that we could face the pains of the day, the pains of the past, that we could move through them with your love, with your support, that we could then release them to you so that they don't burden us on the journey ahead. God, you are good, and you are inviting us into goodness. May we learn from you and from one another how to leave behind the things that don't serve. Amen.